0: today we're going to talk about iffy faith. Iffy faith. It's what we see, I think. Iffy faith. Let's see what we can learn together from uh, this extraordinary situation here as we go continue our journey through the Gospel of Mark. Why are we going through the Gospel of Mark? Because we're going through a turbulent time. Not so much just as a congregation, but I think uh, in our society, nationally, um, there's all kinds of turbulence. Uh, Stephan and Liesel, the turbulence took them to South Africa for a while and has brought them back. And Simone has been stuck at work and she's finally been released for a Sunday. It's great to see you. Uh, there's all kinds of other, there's been illness in Raymond's family. Are you look, Are you getting better? All of you, that's good to know. Good. Uh, there's been, and there's all kinds of other things that are causing turbulence in our lives. And what the, what the Bible reminds us is, if there's turbulence around you, the best thing to do, according to Hebrews 12, is fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. And so we're looking at the gospel and looking at the character and the nature of Jesus to give us the strength to handle all this weirdness that's going going on, frankly. So that's why we're doing this. Now, we're in Mark chapter 9, and we're missing a few things out, and there are some notes on the handout I've put there and on the Watford Word. What are we missing out? We're missing out the incident on the mountain, the transfiguration, as it's often called. We're missing out um, Jesus predicting his death again. We get this more and more as we go more and more through Mark. We're missing out on the disciples arguing with each other. I rather like that. I mean, not that it's a good thing, but I rather like the fact that here are the disciples of Jesus, the very apostles. I mean, surely the creme de la creme, and they get into arguments about who's the greatest. I mean, it does sound a bit playgroundish to me. But nonetheless, Jesus, he finds a way to use these uh, weak men who are, in many ways, just like us. We got a question about people who are not part of their group. They're casting out demons, and is that authorized or not? Very interesting question there about authorization, which we haven't got time to look at today. And uh, we've got the the passage about uh, stumbling and salt and fire, which is a familiar one to many of us from Mark chapter 9, cutting your hand off and that kind of thing. Anyway, there's some notes elsewhere on all that. What we have in this situation with the boy possessed by an impure spirit is what happens immediately after Jesus and three of his disciples come down from the mountain, having met Moses and Elijah. Now, what does that remind you of? What else in Scripture does that remind you of? Some similarities, would you say? Isaac, Abraham and Isaac, and he took him up to the mountain. Okay, there's a mountain. Mountains are very significant in the Scriptures. That's one of great significance. Uh, What... Okay, Moses going up Mount Sinai, and you get God and the Ten Commandments, and when he comes down, what's going on? They're worshipping a golden calf, right? They are confused. They are messed up. And I think there's some interesting parallels in a way. Jesus has this mountaintop experience, Elijah, Moses, and he comes down and nine of his disciples were left behind, and they were there to man the fort, look after the shop while he's gone, I mean, you know, and he's given them, given them, Mark, Mark, you, power over demons back in chapter 6. And he comes down, he thinks, oh, look, I can see them in the, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe he knows. We don't know how much Jesus self-limited his knowledge. We don't know for sure, right? Right. But maybe he detects, I think there's a demon over there. I'm sure my nine faithful disciples are dealing with it. As he gets closer, what does he find? Rather than them dealing with the demons, what are they doing? Arguing with the scribes. And the scribes or the teachers of the law are arguing with them. There's not much going on of any glory to God right here. And sometimes as we look in verses 14 to 16, um, they find these teachers of the law or scribes arguing with we think the disciples, and presumably the crowd and everybody else that's there, and they, people, people run to him. And what we're seeing is sometimes arguing is easier than acting by faith. Sometimes it's just easier to argue, because acting by faith means, well, it means action. It means taking a risk. It means taking a step. It means trusting Jesus. It means saying, I don't have all the answers, but I'm going to act by faith because I trust Jesus. And in this situation, they they are instead arguing. And this can happen. It can happen in families. It can happen in, 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 between husbands and wives, where rather than sitting down and saying, if Jesus was, was at the center of our marriage and the way that we want him and hope he would be, how might we live differently? Rather than talking about that, or how should we improve the spirituality of our relationship or our family, or even as a church, rather than discussing in, in, here or even between churches, what's the best way to honor God? Instead, it's easier sometimes, to argue. Here's my point. But yes, but. But yes, but. and we, listen, Faith is nowhere to be seen, because Jesus is absent. It's really important that we have Jesus at the heart of all that we say and do. And you say, well, yeah, I mean, tick that off. I mean, that's obvious. We're a church. But we can be a church in name without necessarily having Christ at the center. Now, you know, I have to admit, I have preached quite a few sermons in my time, and, so, and as I look back, I think too, too many of them were about something that needed to be done or something the church needed to do rather than about Jesus. And it's okay to preach, I think, to meet a need and to, and to preach to uh, help people take action in certain ways and for a church and all that. But, but if Jesus isn't consistently at the heart of our preaching, our teaching, and our conversations and what we talk about at home, with our kids, with each other, then something is wrong. We are a Christ-focused body that is the definition of a church, isn't it? What is an ecclesia? What is a gathering of disciples? a gathering of people who want Jesus to be at the heart of everything they say and do. And so we're a Christocentric group, if you want to put it that way. He's at the heart of what happens. He's at the heart of what we want. And when, when Jesus is in the core, is the core of what we do and, and talk about, then good things happen. When Jesus is present the good things happen. The three disciples who were with Jesus, we might think, by the way, were more spiritual than the nine left behind, and maybe they could have sorted it out. But we also need to remember that those are the three that are with Jesus in Gethsemane and can't stay awake. So, you know, all the disciples and all of us at times, we lose that focus. We lose that trust. And we gather like this, hopefully in part, to get it back, to draw it back, to refresh our faith. It's why we take the Lord's Supper every Sunday. It's one of the key reasons is to say, oh, oh yeah, I, I may have liked the songs, I may have seen my friends, I may have had a cup of coffee, but actually I need to remember, oh yeah, it's about Jesus. It's about his body and his blood, his sacrifice, his love. And then good things happen. Then good things happen. So a question for us to think about, maybe not to speak out right now, but to think about is, what happens in your life when Jesus ceases to be at the center? Think about your life Think about your Christian life. Think about maybe even what's going on right now. Maybe right now you're thinking, Jesus hasn't been as much the center of my life as would be healthy. Then what does it look like and what happens when Jesus isn't at the center? What happens to your spirit? What happens to your emotions? What happens to your relationships? What happens to the way you think about God, the way you feel about yourself and other people? Jesus needs to be the center. It's important that as we think about what we're going through, uh, or what, what our plans are for the next couple of months, it's important to remember that we are not a. This move to the West Watford Free Church building, that's not what we're all about. We're about people and Jesus. So uh, churches get off track when they get buildings focused, and that happens from time to time. Uh, churches get off track when they get growth focused. We're not a gathering of Christians to grow. We're a gathering of Christians to love and know God and Jesus, and then God will bring the growth. And we should be interested in God's church growing, but it's not why we gather. Churches get off track when they get program focused. Churches get off track when they, and I'm going to say this, it may sound a bit strange, but when they get focused on any, even exclusively, if you like, or too narrowly on any particular gift of God, or or nature of God. So someone said to me a few years ago, we should be a grace-focused church. And it's interesting because I agree and I disagree. Because, of course, we should have grace at the heart of many things that we do. But grace is a part of the nature of Jesus. So Jesus is the focus. It must never not be Jesus. So yes, of course, that person was trying to say to me, what they were really saying is we need to be talking more about grace and and living more in grace. And and I accept that. But I don't think that's our, if you like, our singular focus. If we're going to say, "What is our singular focus?" a thing not even love a thing. Our children are important in this church, but they're not our focus. Jesus is the focus. Um, when we keep Jesus as our focus and the heart of all we do, then it keeps all the other things in balance. The building, and the children, and the topics we study, and the way we do, those things will be in balance if Jesus is at the heart of it all. And if Jesus is at the heart, it prevents what you might call Christian weirdness. (laughs) Christians can be a bit weird from time to time, and I I speak for myself, I speak for myself, (laughs) obviously I speak for myself, but you know... And it's it's okay for Christians to be a little alternative and different to the world, that's fine. But sometimes we can get a little bit weird, like we get focused on something. This is the really important thing about Christianity. The really important thing about Christianity is Jesus and only him. The other things are relatively peripheral. So this is, I think, what's going on here is that Jesus has been, been absent not only in person, but in his in their faith in him, their, their expectation of what he could do through them. This is the other nine disciples that are still there. And then he asks them, what are you arguing with them about? And you will note, the disciples don't answer. And the teachers of the Lord don't answer. They're all embarrassed, I think. But it's the man who answers. Brought you my son, possessed of a spirit, robbed him a speech. It's a horrible situation, isn't it? seizes him, throws him to the ground, foams at the mouth, gnashes teeth, becomes rigid. I asked your disciples, and I can see them looking away. I asked your disciples, they didn't have the strength. They lacked the strength. You unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Because that... Those, that phraseology is very Old Testament. It's very prophetic. It's, it's it's the language of the prophets, of God through the prophets, when God's people were astray from God. How long shall I stay with you, an unbelieving generation? How long? I mean, Jesus was only going to be with them for another, what, a couple of years or so at most. And how long will would judgment be delayed on the people of Israel? Well, it wasn't that long before the Roman legions were marching in Jerusalem in AD 70, and destroying the city, destroying the temple. It wasn't that long. And it strikes me that what Jesus is appealing to in many ways is, I'm here, take this opportunity to follow me, to know me, to accept me. And I might say to any of us here who haven't yet decided to really, to really embrace who Jesus is, to find out who he is, what it means to follow Jesus, perhaps some of our teens, is if you haven't yet got there, you haven't really got, got that, I need, you know, it's time for me to look into this, D- don't, don't delay forever. I mean, it may be the right time, it may not be the right time for you right now, but don't delay forever because you don't know when the, when the time runs out. None of us know. None of us know about tomorrow. They weren't strong enough and God's honor was not displayed in the way it could have been through the disciples and in that situation. So, um, the man, the man uh, after the boy comes to Jesus and, and has uh, some kind of fit, Jesus asks him, how long has he been like this? I imagine Jesus knows, but he, he wants to dialogue with the, the father. I think it's a sign of compassion. From childhood, often throwing him into fire or water to kill him. Can you imagine that? I had a good friend who, uh, there was a, a gas... Um, Portable gas fire was in his bedroom when he was a, a baby in a crib, and it, uh, some of the bedding caught fire. And um, I mean, he lived, but he had dreadful scarring on his flesh all down one side of his body the rest of his life. Uh, it's it's a it's a, it's a horrible thing, obviously, that's going on here, and and then the man says. But if you can do anything. Now this is the iffy faith. if you can do anything. Take pity on us and help us. If. It seems to me that here what the man is doubting is not the compassion of Jesus, but the power of Jesus. And that's in contrast to the leper in Mark chapter one, who came to or willing make me clean. So the leper wasn't sure if Jesus cared. He believed he had the power. He wasn't sure about whether he was willing to do it. Here, it looks like the man believes that Jesus cares, but he's not sure if the power is there. Maybe that's something to do with the fact that the disciples, of course, tried and failed. We're not quite sure why he has this, but nonetheless, he does own his unbelief. And I think that's truly impressive. It's truly impressive because Jesus comes back and says, everything's possible for him who believes. And the man says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. He's being honest. In front of the disciples, in front of the teachers of the law, in front of the crowd, and specifically in front of Jesus, he's saying, you know what? I don't have what it takes. I don't think I have enough faith. I need your help. Please help me. The humility involved is quite something when you think how public this is. He has, he has uh, uh, the humility to ask for some help. And I think what he wants is, he's just saying, Jesus, I don't know how much help I need, but give me the help I need. Just enough. I just, I've got this iffy faith. Can you use it? Could you add to it? Could you strengthen it? I relate a lot to that in my life. But I have a lot of things in my life that I can't quite see how, how it's going to turn out. How is God going to figure something out? How is God going to heal something? How is God going to sort something out? What is God actually doing? And I, it's like you, you're peering into the mist and I can't see it. And I, I, you know when I think about my kids and, and pray that they become Christians, or I think about health issues I have or people in my family, or I think about a succession planning, for example, you know like I'm 60. Okay, what's going to happen when I can't do this anymore or I shouldn't do this anymore? What's going to happen to this congregation? I don't know. I don't need to know. But those things come to my mind. Um, what, what's going to happen with various situations in my life or around me that are painful, difficult, hurtful? We've all got things like that. I don't necessarily need the faith to, that says, I know how that's going to turn out and I trust God for that. I think I only need the faith. God, help me with my iffy faith to trust you for today and that you're going to do something good in the end. And I'd encourage, I've been doing this this week, having reflected on this, and I'd encourage us all. What you might want to do is make a list of the areas in your life where you have iffy faith, some things that you find difficult to trust God for. Make a list of the iffy areas. And maybe pray about those, specifically asking God to give you whatever level of faith you need to see you through, to trust him through, through the fire, through the storm, through whatever it is. What are your areas of iffy faith? Where do we perhaps doubt the power of Jesus? Maybe we believe in his compassion, but we struggle to see how he will work and sort something out generally think our struggles in faith are over one or other of those issues. Does Jesus really care, or does Jesus really have the power? Sometimes it's not both at once, right? Sometimes it's one more than the other. Maybe depend on personality. Having the faith. The things that without Jesus we can't do, but with Jesus we could do. Like become a Christian when you're young. Might be difficult, but with Jesus, maybe. uh, Handle the peer pressure at school. When people know you go to church, you do what on a Sunday? What's wrong with you? When people at work find out that we're Christians or members of our family are scornful about our faith. Without Jesus, I cannot, but with Jesus, I can lead people to Jesus. Can't do it on my own, but with Jesus. Without Jesus, I cannot, but with Jesus, I can create an atmosphere of Christian spirituality in my home. Without Jesus, I cannot, but with Jesus, I can persevere in prayer for my children, that they will come to love God and whoever else we care about. Without Jesus, I cannot, but with Jesus, I can reconcile with a friend who's hurt me. Not just outside church, but maybe maybe inside too. Without Jesus, I cannot. With Jesus, I can. And perhaps, just a word to any of us that feel a little unworthy. I imagine the nine disciples are feeling very unworthy at the end of all this. God, we messed it up. He's going to fire us now (laughs) and recruit nine more. I mean, that's how I would be feeling. I don't know. But we need to bear in mind that whatever our insecurities, Jesus persevered with this lot. And he's going to persevere with you and me. Whatever's going on. He's not going to give up on any of us here. That's not what he's like. So what kind of Jesus do you trust to help you with your impossible situation? Remember, iffy faith is actually all you really need. It doesn't have to be mountaintop, extraordinary, mountain-moving faith. Remember Jesus said the only faith you need is faith like a mustard seed, really small. And the mustard seed faith will move the mountains. I think the mustard seed faith is a bit like the iffy faith. At the end of this passage, I'm just going to finish off by looking at verse 30 and and what Jesus says about what's coming soon. And then I'm going to ask Liesl to pray for us before we take bread and wine. Verse 30, they carry on, Uh, traveling, and he's teaching, and then he says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise. And they didn't understand it. They couldn't at that point. We, from our vantage point, look back and see what he was talking about. And we know that all these challenges to Jesus and the disciples ended in victory. And it was a victory brought about by the cross by Jesus willingness to self to sacrifice himself for us he did he was delivered into the hands of men but he, he allowed himself to be he had the power to escape that but chose to go along with it and those people did kill him again even though he could have called on 10,000 angels and they would have rescued him and after 3 days he did rise so we have no fear of death and no fear of the effects of sin Death is the door, an open door to something more glorious. He will rise. And it's interesting that we see this after the account of the young a boy who was healed, because there's, re- there's resurrection language in that account. He looked so much like a corpse, they said he's dead. Jesus took him by the hand, and that word lifted is important. Lifted him to his feet, and he stood up, because it's the same word... That's used of the resurrection when someone rises, when Jesus rose from the dead. It's the same word. So we've got a bit of a prefiguring here of what Jesus was about to do. He was about to bring hope in an impossible situation there, but he was about to bring hope to the world, an impossible situation in this world, to bring hope to know that there is hope beyond death and there's hope for healing. How amazing that is. Iffy faith is all we need. It's going to be enough. We'll take bread and wine in a moment, but I'd like to ask you a best.